Well, good morning, Four Corners. I'm so glad that you are here for the last week of our Hard Candy Message series. Here's what we've been doing since Easter. We've been looking at some of the more difficult things that Jesus had to say in the New Testament. They're difficult because when you first hear them, it's like you're driving your car and you hit a speed bump. And it gets you to just pause for a moment. That's the intent. Gets you to pause for a moment, slow down, begin to reflect on what he means. And so we've been taking time in our services since Easter to do that. And you're here for the last one. And I'm going to take you to a passage of scripture that I think gets to, and I don't want to overstate here, but I think it gets to the heart of what God's trying to do in this world. All right. Now, uh, before I jump in, though, let me tell you what we're going to begin doing next week. We're going to begin a new message series called Better Together. Now, this is the language we were using as we tried to bring two healthy, life-giving churches in North Cincinnati together into one church. We used that phrase, better together, to talk about what we thought God would want to do in that. And we're revisiting that phrase, better together, because over the next five weeks, beginning next week, we're going to look at some of the values that God wants to raise in our new developing church, where two churches have come together. Some of the values God wants to raise, we're going to talk about them. Discover his heart for us and this community. And if you call this church home at all, or maybe you're investigating a church and you want to know what this church is all about, the next five weeks are going to give you the heartbeat of this place. And Pastor Andy and I are going to share that teaching load. I really, really want you to come uh, be a part of that. All right, so I'm a pastor, as it should be obvious to you right now, and I get a chance to talk to people all the time at various stages in their life. It's one of the most enjoyable things that I do as a pastor. I get to talk to people, and they trust me with stuff, what's going on in their private lives, what's going on in their relationships, what's going on in their hearts and their minds as it relates to the relationship with the Lord. There's a lot of questions sometimes and some hurt, but in those conversations, I've discovered some trends that happen. Some trends that happen in and around spiritual stuff. And we're going to expose one of those trends today and look at it through the lenses of God's Word. It's a trend I've recognized in my own life. And I just want to kind of lay it out there to you bluntly. It's this trend that says somehow God is really into me. Like God really, really is into me. And I have some scripture to support this because the Bible's very clear that Jesus loves me. Right? Jesus loves me. Do you know that song? Maybe you learned it. If you grew up in church, Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. Anybody? Yeah, you got that? All right, good, good deal. Yeah, I'm reminded of the pastor that was seated on a plane, and he sat down next to an astrophysicist, and at some point on their journey from point A to point B, the physicist looked at the pastor and said, what do you do? The pastor said, I'm a pastor, which, by the way, you never say if you're a pastor. Most pastors never admit they're a pastor on the plane because the conversation gets very stilted. People start going, did I just cuss in the last 45 seconds? So anyway, he says, I'm a pastor. And the physicist, in an attempt to like head off all discussion, he says, well, here's all I know about religion. Jesus loves me. This I know for the Bible tells me so. As if that was the capstone statement of all things that could be said. And that is a powerful statement. And then the pastor asked the physicist, who didn't yet know he was a physicist, well, what what do you do? And the physicist says, well, I'm a a physicist. And the pastor, in equal turn, looks at him and says, twinkle, twinkle, little star. (laughs) Now, here's the point I'm trying to make. Neither one of them understood the full depth of what the other was managing through their career and the full weight of what they were trying to bring to the world as they did their various vocations. And today... We're going to have an opportunity to start with the very simple concept that in one sense, God is very into you. He is. 
He's very into me. And that phrase, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, is 100% accurate. It's true. And for many of us in the room, that's what you need to hear today. But as accurate as it is, it isn't complete. It isn't the whole story of what God is doing. And in fact, if that's as far as we go in our understanding, believing that that statement sums it all up, and in some sense, I guess it does in some metaphorical sense, but there certainly is a lot more meat we can hang on, that, on those sets of bones. If we believe that's all there is, I feel like, potentially at least, my observation about myself and in talking to so many people is that it can leave our faith hollow. It can leave our faith insufficient. This is not a new dynamic for people who are interested in God's stuff. To think that somehow God is about them. And so when you read your Bible from Genesis to Revelation, there's a lot of stuff that supports the notion that really what God wants you to know is he's very into you. And it's very easy when you're distressed, when you're facing a challenge, when you're thinking about the future with a lot of unknown, to really rally around those passages. It's a similar emotion that Jesus' disciples had as they saw Jesus walking around the world that he lived in preaching with such power. The kind of power that they would watch people who were completely disinterested in spiritual things. When Jesus would start talking, they would lean in. He had authority when he spoke. It, it was the kind of emotion that Jesus' disciples were developing that God is really into them when they saw Jesus walk around and touch sick people and instantly they were healed. Or when Jesus would have conflict with the ruling authorities, ultimately a, a shadow government of Rome, and Jesus wouldn't back down and how empowering it felt for the followers of Jesus that perhaps soon would come a break from that oppressive regime. Re regime. They felt, man, God is really into us. But at some point, at the height of Jesus' popularity, while the crowds are following him and he's doing miracles and he's teaching with authority, there was another stream beginning to develop and Jesus began to pepper this developing story with streams of thought that really were disturbing to the followers of Jesus. And it didn't match their notion that God is so into me that what God wants in this world more than anything else is for me to be blessed. It didn't match their notions, their understanding of that. And so you don't have to go to very far in either Matthew in your Bible or Mark or Luke or John. These are the four books of the New Testament that deal with the story of Jesus directly. You don't have to go very far in any one of those books so you start coming across this contrary, at least it appears, contrary stream to God is really into you and just wants you to be happy. And Jesus starts saying some very strange things. The kind of things that if you were driving a car, it feels like a speed bump. Or in our metaphor for this message series, it's kind of like hard candy. You want to slow down so you don't choke on it. Because you know there's something in it. It's got your attention. And now you've got to unravel it unpack it, savor it over time to get its full sweetness out. So in a moment, not right now, in a moment, I'm going to take you to Mark. So if I have a chance to preach any of the four Gospels, I always go to Mark, all right? It's just a thing that started for me. I love that book. We're going to go to Mark, but all four of the Gospels deal with a similar experience in Jesus, or the exact same experience in similar ways in Jesus' life. 
But before we do that, I want to take you to a place in your Bible where this idea that God is really into us gets spoken. So many of you know Psalm chapter 23. Even if you didn't grow up in church, maybe you've heard the first few lines of this paragraph found in the middle of our Old Testament. It begins this way. You Maybe you've heard it at, a, at, a, at a, a funeral. It says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. This psalm, Psalm 23, was written by David. The psalmist, this is the same guy that kills Goliath by the power of God and raises up as a king in Israel and falls, but God redeems him and sets up an incredible kingdom. Jesus is a descendant, you know, through multiple generations from this guy. He writes this incredible verse that gets read at funerals because it's incredibly comforting. And it sounds like, at first blush, God is really into us because he's our shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. He's taking care of me. And because he takes care of me, I have no want. There's no, here's what it literally, there's no lack in my life. Man, doesn't that sound great? There's no lack in my life. I mean, wouldn't it be awesome today if you came into this place and at every level of your life there were no lack financially, relationally, emotionally, in terms of just energy to face what's in front of you, spiritually, no lack at all. Because God is my shepherd, I shall not want. I have no lack in my life. And we read passages like this, and they stoke the fires of us believing that somehow God is really into us. And what he wants more than anything else is the implication of God being into us. What he wants more than anything else is for you to be happy, wealthy, wise, whole. I mean, depending on our backgrounds, we string all kinds of adjectives to describe what God wants for us because he's really into us. I love the 23rd Psalm. Because it introduces the other stream that I want to talk to you about. One that doesn't fully cancel the idea that God is into you, because he is. But it becomes the foundation and explains why God is into you. See, here's what I want you to walk away with today. I want you, as we look at Jesus' words in, in a moment or two, I want you to walk away with two complimentary, not contradictory, complimentary ideas. God is really into you. But I want you to understand why he is. And when you understand why, it gives you freedom to revel in the fact that he's into you. And it keeps you from walking outside into some crazy, unhealthy, ungodly expression of what it means to walk knowing that God is fully into you. And so in Psalm 23, we begin to get this idea introduced to us. It, but we have to go just a little bit under the surface to, to discover it. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Do you remember how the rest of it goes? He makes me to lie down in green pastures. And in this phrase, we get the first indication that God, yes, he's into you because he's a shepherd. He cares for you. He wants you to have no lack of anything you really need. But then there's a phrase introduced when it says, he makes me to lie down in green, in green pastures that introduces a new characteristic of God that speaks to the counter idea that he's just into you. And it's the phrase, he makes me to lie down. He makes me to lie down. See, some people, when they believe that God's really into them, they believe that what he's there for is to simply animate all that they want. I have no lack. God will give me everything that I want. God will give me everything I think I feel like I need in this moment. God will give me 
God doesn't want me to hurt. God doesn't want me to have any pain. God doesn't want me to go through any distress because he's my shepherd. I have no want in life. But this next phrase begins to introduce another idea that Jesus is going to bring full force when he says he makes me lie down. He doesn't say in this passage, God suggests that you lie down in green pastures. The voice shifts in Psalm 23, one verse in. It begins with you, the Lord is my shepherd. Whoo, isn't that awesome? God takes care of me. I don't have any want. And now we have a, a shift in voice. Now there's somebody else who becomes the focus of the story. It's him, and he's making me do some stuff. Now, so far, the stuff he's making me do is good. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. That's good. I love it. Even when I don't want to. So I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, but, but it's good. Because even if I don't want to lie down in green pastures, he makes me lie down in green pastures. So, whew, yeah, because he's my shepherd. And he's really into me. He makes me lie down in green pastures. And then the next line kind of continues this theme. He leads me beside still waters. Now, if you're stuck in only a simplistic understanding that God is into you and he doesn't want you to have any distress, you're reading Psalm 23 and you're focusing on he's your shepherd, no lack, green pastures, still waters. And you're missing the fact that there's been a shift in voice that somebody else is in charge of your life and it's not you. It's not you. Yeah, the Lord is your shepherd, which means really not that he's there to just take care of you. He's there to lead you, to be in charge of you. What does that being in charge look like? He makes you lie down in green pastures. Doesn't suggest it. And he leads you beside still waters. And do you sense the the subtle shift in who's really the focus of the passage? The focus of the passage isn't the benefit we get from the Lord being our shepherd. The focus of the passage is he is our shepherd. And there's incredible benefits that comes to us when he is our shepherd. But that is not the focus. And he leads me in paths of righteousness. Isn't that awesome? But again, he leads me to where he wants me to go. And then verse 3, it says, he restores my soul. And so you have this dialogue between him and me. He restores. He leads. He makes. He's the shepherd. I'm the sheep. I'm being led. I'm being made to. I'm the recipient. And it's this dialogue that goes on in your spiritual life, your entire life. The role you play and the role God plays. He restores my soul, verse 3. He leads me in paths of righteousness. And then here's where it gets very interesting. For his name's sake. And this is where we get to the all-important question of why. Why, friends, is a powerful question. Why is God into you? Why? Why did Jesus come to this earth and die for you? Is it, here's some options, he's going to throw some out. Is it because, as some people have written, God was so lonely, he had some sense of gap in him, that he needed a creature. And in having a relationship with the creation, he felt somehow complete. There was a gap in God, he was lonely, and so he created so he wouldn't be lonely. And so we then are the supreme example of completing God. Is it because 
God is in love with some future version of you, not who you are today, but in some future version of you when you finally get it all together. God is so in love with your potential that he's willing to take a risk on you today. It's all about you. Is it because really what he's more interested in than anything else in this world is for your happiness, lack of distress in your life, so that every need, every lack, you can come to God and say, God, I need more of A, B, C, D. I'm hoping you're feeling just a little bit of tension wondering where I'm going with this. Because I'm telling you, what I'm dancing all over right now is a fundamental shallowness that happens in spiritual life in America today. And when we read Jesus' words in a minute, they're going to come hard against this shallowness. That somehow what God is really about is you and your pleasure. There's a lot of passages that relate to that. You can read a lot of passages and infer that, and it's not completely wrong. But there is a deeper issue, and it's the issue of why, and it was introduced for us in Psalm chapter 23, when in verse 3 it says, for his namesake. He becomes the shepherd, he leads, he guides, he directs, he makes, for his namesake. Not for mine. God does what God does for him, not for you. And I know that for many of us, you've not heard this before. And I want to apologize for all the churches that didn't make this clear to you. That's why we're going to go to Jesus' words, and we're going to let Jesus teach us today. That's why I'm taking some time to set us up so that when he teaches us, you can know I'm not just pulling this out of thin air. I don't have an agenda for you. I just want you to know the truth about why God is for you, and he is for you, not for you. He is for you, for him. The biblical writers in almost every book of the Bible zero in on this fact that God is for God. In the book of Joshua, Joshua is about to face a battle, and he is scared to death because the army is big. There's a lot riding on this issue. He is stressed to the max. And he had seen Moses walk with God and how God seemed to come through for Moses all the time. And so he takes a walk. And in the middle of the walk, he meets a being. It takes him a while, but he discovers it's the head of God's angel army. And he realizes he's in a spiritual moment. It's a special time. And he looks at the head of God's angel army, the one who had been defeating every foe that Moses, his predecessor, had, had, had faced. And Joshua asks him, Who is God for? Which side are you on? Now, the expected answer is, of course, Joshua, I'm on your side. You're the children of Israel's leader. I'm for you guys. But that's not what the head of the angel armies says. The head of the angel army says, neither. I'm not for you nor against you. We're here for God's agenda. And we get to be a part of that. And when we're a part of that, it benefits us. But let's not get the cart before the horse. God isn't for you because he's so enamored with you. God is for you because God has an agenda for him in the middle of being for you. The disciples, as they're experiencing Jesus' powerful teaching and his miracles and the height of his popularity and the promise of the destruction of an oppressive regime, 
they're loving what Jesus is doing for them. They're loving the spillover effect of being around a very famous and powerful guy. They're enjoying it. Let me tell you how much they're enjoying it. They're actually beginning to argue arguments that say like this. Hey, when this thing takes full form, like when you really get rolling, Jesus, can I sit right at your right-hand side? Can, can I? I mean, what I really want, Jesus, after I've watched everything you've said and done, what I really want is, is I want to be, no, you get to be number one. I'd like to be number two. Or they're having another debate. Which of the 12 of us do you think he loves the most? Because they're watching all the stuff Jesus is doing, and their desires for what Jesus can do for them are growing. Not a bad thing, but it hasn't been shaped yet. It hasn't been filtered yet. So somewhere about the middle of the book of Mark, Matthew, Luke, and John, there is a turn. And Jesus starts peppering into the dialogue some troubling news like this. Hey, you know how popular I am right now? Let me tell you something. Um, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, and they're going to kill me. It's coming to a sudden end. And the disciples are like, <clears throat> no, no, we're not going to let that happen. We're not going to. That's not our agenda, because our agenda is built upon Jesus, what you can do for me. I need you, Jesus, to keep this machine rolling. Don't talk like that in the crowd, because when you do, crowds leave. Don't introduce other streams of thought into my picture of what you want from me, because Jesus, we can tell you're pretty into us. I mean, you have to believe Jesus is into you to be able to go to him and say, we, we want to be number one and number two. And so Jesus starts peppering in another stream of thought that gets them to ask a deeper question. All right, what's really going on here? What is God really doing in Jesus? What is God really doing in the world? And so in Mark chapter 8, verse 31 through 37, we come up on this story. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. Well, uh-oh. Suffering. There's a problem. There's a problem in American Christianity, but no different than the problem that, experienced in the, that they experienced in the first century in Palestine. I mean, he had had some opposition, but there had been very little suffering. Every problem they came upon, Jesus spoke a word, something happened. Every conflict, Jesus, through a twist of logic or through some miraculous move, he quieted his oppressors. But now Jesus is going all the way there, and he says, the Son of Man must suffer many things and must be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law. And that he must be killed, and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. And I love Peter. And so Peter took him aside and he began to rebuke him. <laughs> no. I mean, just imagine. Jesus and Peter saying, that stuff you just said ain't happening. You shouldn't talk. I don't know what the rebuke looked like, but rebuke is a pretty strong word. It is a harsh, forceful correction. No. And so, verse uh, number, well, I need glasses, 33. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he then rebuked Peter, get behind me, Satan. Now that's, that's kind of stern. Everybody's looking now, right? Everybody, it's like, it's like that grocery store moment or the restaurant moment, everything's going fine. But the table next to you, some kid's acting up and mom or dad raises their voice. I said, stop it. You know what everybody does in the room? <laughs> Right? 
I used to make fun of parents like that all the time until I had multiple kids. Then I started saying, no, please set me by the kitchen. Please, where the noise can, all right? So everybody turned, get behind me, Satan. And he said, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Two streams. God's concern, God's agenda, human concerns, human agenda. And the thing that Peter's about to be schooled upon and the disciples are about to be schooled upon, we don't talk enough about in our churches. Because while, yes, God is very into you, there's a reason he's into you, and it's not for you. God has an agenda in this world. God has a spiritual concern as opposed to just our human felt concerns. And he's going to, in the next few words, give us some real, real insight that I'm going to tell you is not palatable, it's not enjoyable, but if we'll take some time and reflect on them, think about them, pray through them, measure our life through the filter of them, they'll bring you, and here's what's at stake, it will bring you more than just fleeting happiness that comes when you think God is for me. So Jesus, today, as I drive to the supermarket, would you please allow me to have a parking spot right near the front? And so you circle the parking lot three or four times, and sure enough, one opens up, you pull in, you're like, thank you, Jesus. God, you're so good. I am blessed and highly favored among all people. Awesome, if that's the way God works for you. That's awesome. I I love it. Right? Now, now listen, I'm not saying God's not into you, because he is. What I'm saying is, is he's not into you because he thinks you're so awesome. And he thinks that you've got it all together, or some future version of you will, and so he's willing to make an event. God is into you for a very different reason. He's into you for his own agenda. The entire Bible makes it clear that God's agenda is God, not you. We get invited into his agenda. We don't manipulate his agenda. We get invited into his story. We don't rewrite his story. The beginning point is God. So when we read the 23rd Psalm, it's less about, it's about, but it's less about what God brings to you and more about the fact that there's a God who has an agenda. He doesn't suggest, he leads, he directs, he makes. For what purpose? For his own namesake. So in rebuking Peter, Jesus brings him right to the issue. The Bible says in verse 34, Then he called the crowd along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciples must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? This is what my, my professors used to call cat and dog theology. Cat and dog theology. Some, some of you have both pets. Some of you are dog people, cat people. The, the dog people, welcome to Four Corners. <laughs> cat and dog theology. Here's the way this goes. A cat says... I'm fed, I'm cleaned up after, all my needs are provided for, I must be God. A dog says, I'm fed, I'm cleaned up after, all my needs are provided for, my master must be God. 
This is why when you come home and you have a dog, they're like all over you, can't wait to see you, and you come home, and you have a cat, and they're like, <laughs> you know I'm telling the truth about cats and dogs right here. This is the theological difference I'm trying to make right now. The dog says, I get all this stuff. What an awesome master I have. I get all, I am the focus of it. He is awesome because of all that he. And the cat says, I get all this stuff. I must be pretty awesome. And then we're joking about it. But Jesus was trying to correct that out of Peter right here. Because you can read the Bible and you can get so focused on you and what God wants that you set up an expectation. Maybe you haven't even thought about it this way, but you set up an expectation that God can never live up to because what God's real job is for you is to keep you happy, happy and help you avoid challenges here in this world. I just want to be honest with you because I love you. That is not God's agenda for you. Now, sometimes that happens. But that is not what God is about, your happiness. There's a much deeper reality that God is about. And in this passage we just read, we get a little hint of it. It's, it's in some sense a cousin to happiness. But the Bible writers take great pains to explain the difference between happiness and its cousin, joy. See, what God is about is his own namesake, his own glory. And as we tap into that story, it becomes for us then a source of joy which is very different than happiness. Happiness is fleeting. It feels good. It's a drug to us. We love our own happiness. You love your happiness. I didn't say you love everybody else's. You know, I know this. For those of you that are married, you already know this about you. You're very into your happiness, and your happiness is more important to you than your spouse's happiness. You don't believe me? Look at your spouse. Don't nod and say, he's telling the truth. You're more interested in your happiness than you are mine. Or you have been. Or when we thought, at least it was that way. Happiness is fleeting. Happiness is circumstantial. So the biblical writers go to great pains and say, God is after his own glory. And as we tap into that story, it becomes for us a source of joy that isn't dependent upon our circumstances. This is why the Apostle Paul writes these words. He says, I have learned in whatever state I find myself to be content. I can have joy no matter in hardship, suffering, and pain, I can have joy because it's ultimately not about me. It's about God and God's agenda. So this is why the Apostle Paul, when he finds himself in prison for preaching the gospel, imagine the discord that would create inside of somebody. God, I'm doing your work. I'm doing exactly what you called me to do. I'm following your plan. Why am I in prison? You know what I would say? God, you let down the bargain to some degree. That makes no, no sense. There's no justice here. Because in my world, I'm too often about what God brings me as I engage God. But not Paul. When Paul finds himself in prison, he sees it as an opportunity to get on board with God's story, which is God brings glory to God. So when Paul's in prison, Paul brings glory to God. And he says, look, if I'm in prison, here, here's what I want. Bring me a hymnal. And we'll sing. And my imprisonment will be an opportunity for a worship service. And in the middle of my chains, I will sing praises unto God. Because it wasn't circumstantial happiness, but there was instead a deep-seated joy. As Paul plugged into God's agenda, and not just his own comfort and satisfaction. 
It was what Jesus was trying to deal with when he looked at Peter and said, the words you're speaking, Peter, that I can't be about my father's business, those are not from God, they're from Satan. I'm going to call that out. So instead, Peter, why don't you think about denying yourself? Here's something you don't know about me, maybe. I love our country. I am American through and through. I love everything about it. I'm a history buff. I love the character and the competence of our founding fathers. I'm a big fan. Now, I have all kinds of implications from that statement that are political that we won't discuss here. But there's, there's a couple of lines in our founding documents that I, make, I think make for great society, but they make for bad spirituality. Here's the primary one. Life, liberty, and do you know the next phrase? Pursuit of happiness. Do you know that it used to be life, liberty, and the right to own property? But that didn't motivate anybody. So they changed it to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And I believe in that. I think it's what our country should be about. You should be free. I should be free to pursue happiness within certain bounds. Of course, we can debate about those. But, but you understand that that's America. It's good. That's not God's agenda, though. God's agenda isn't your happiness. It is something deeper. It is a joy that comes only when his agenda comes to the surface. It's what caused Paul in prison to say, God, what do you really want to do here? It allowed him to have a worship service in the middle of prison. When he was shipwrecked three times, and on one of those, after the shipwreck, he winds up on the shore, and within just a few hours, he's bitten by a snake. And he's, you know, going to die. And yet he finds himself just emptying his own agenda. God, whatever you want for me. And the more Paul tapped into God's story, in some ways, the rougher his life got, but the more joy he obtained. And that's the secret of the passage we read. That the secret of the passage that we read is that if we will take Jesus' words to Peter, which were recorded so that all of us could take them seriously, if we will deny ourselves, not just deny ourselves in some aesthetic reality, not like some monk, but turn away our eyes from ourselves and fix them on Jesus, deny ourselves, pick up the cross, and follow where God is going in this world, it will actually bring us the very life that deep down, below the surface stuff, we really want more than anything anyway. And some of us just haven't lived long enough to know this yet, but you will one day. We will wake up, all of us one day, and realize, I'm 45, I'm starting to realize, that so much of what I thought was the source of my happiness in my early years, now I'm beginning to realize is hollow fruit. It's wax fruit. It looked appealing, but it doesn't satisfy. So here at 45, I like nice stuff. What I'm beginning to discover on deeper levels every year that I live, every time I do a funeral, every time I sit with a family who has an, a sick, terminally ill you know, loved one, I sit down and I realize all the stuff that I thought would bring me joy, that's not really where it's at at all. That all the stuff I own, I'm just going to pick on me for a minute, all the stuff I own will end up in a landfill at a junkyard or in a garage sale. But man, in my 20s, that stuff made me happy. And, and I still like it. I ain't going to lie. I, I still. But that's not what God's about. He's not about getting me stuff. Now, now, he likes me to have the life he wants for me. That's why sometimes he makes me to lie down in green pastures. That's why he leads me beside still waters. 
for his name's sake, not simply for the benefit of Ben. But here's the magic that Jesus was saying to the disciples. When you get in board with God's story, you're free to deny yourself. You're free to embrace whatever God wants you to carry, your cross. The purpose, whatever hardship comes with you living out your purpose, you're free. You're free to deal with your biggest problem in life. And do you know what it is? I don't, I don't mean to be rude, but do you realize that your biggest problem, my biggest problem in life is you. You're not my biggest problem. You're your biggest problem. I'm my biggest problem. And when I take Jesus' words to Peter, seriously, I am freed then to deal with me in an honest and transparent way as I deny me so I can say yes to God. I'm free to then look at my clamoring for stuff through the lens of what God might be wanting to do, not simply through what I think will make me happy in this moment. And so Jesus' words, deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow me, they are words of denial. They run counter to our American psyche to some degree, but they really are the words to life and ultimately to what we would trade for anyway, which is deep satisfaction, joy, contentment, and purpose. Anyone that gives up stuff will gain back more. In one place, Jesus said, if you, if you deny father, mother, sister, and brothers and all the stuff life has to offer, you're going to receive it a hundredfold, not just in that life to come, but here and now. There's something deeper than our satisfaction, and it's tied to the question, what is God really wanting to do in your life, and why is he doing it? For you and you alone, or for his grand purposes in this world? We forfeit things. We forfeit us, and we gain eternal life. We forfeit us. We step into purpose. We forfeit us. We step into joy, which isn't fleeting or circumstantial. When Luke was writing this ex experience of Peter and the words Jesus spoke to him, he adds a word that the other writers don't add. I'm sure Jesus said it. The other ones give us a shorthand version. Luke says, take up your cross daily. And follow me. I like the emphasis on daily. Because it talks about that regularly. We, you, me, need to go and say, as Paul writes, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. That I can wrestle deeply with the things that I think are bringing me joy. I can wrestle deeply with the nature of my relationship with God. Am I really connected with God simply because I think he's really into me and I like the benefits I get? Or am I a disciple that is willing to put aside my agenda, put aside my story, and let God's story speak powerfully into my life? That is the question of discipleship of going deeper. Whose story, whose agenda takes first seat? And are you willing to investigate the relationship you really have? I know this is a hard saying. And, it, and in our quick application microwave world, we want to, and as a church, we do a good job at this, so it's not all bad. We jump straight to application, but today the application is for you and I 
to think deeply about what we are connected to God for, our glory or his glory. Because I can assure you, God has never gotten confused. He is only about his glory in this world. He is only about the name of Jesus being made famous. And if yours gets made famous in the, in the, you know, on the sidelines, as that's happening, awesome. And if it doesn't, as long as you and I are on board with his agenda, God doesn't care. He is about him, not you, not me. But oh, we can be about his business too. And there's the source of meaning and joy and purpose. That we get to tap into his story versus trying to grab hold of his agenda, his might, his abilities, and pull it into ours. Your life, your happiness is far too small a goal to give your life to. Your happiness is far too small a goal to give your life to. And all of us have been called to tap into the Father's business. And Jesus makes it clear here in this passage that any price we pay to tap into his business, his agenda, will be repaid for us. We will feel like we're losing, but in fact, we will gain. There are Christians right now around our globe who are discovering deeper levels of Paul's words when he says, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. And they kneel on a beach and their heads are cut off. And they stand firm. Are they happy? I doubt it. Is there some fear? I'm sure there is. But they have joy. Their life matters. In the economy of God, it matters far more than whether or not you got that parking place and God answered your prayer about this thing. But does he care? Of course. But he just doesn't care for you. He cares for him. So I'm trying in my life to discover new purposes, new understandings of what it means for me to be on God's agenda instead of asking and begging him to come on board and bless mine. I'm trying to start with him. When I read a psalm like Psalm 23, I love what it seems to promise me that God will prepare a table before me, uh, for me in the presence of my enemies. And when you go through struggle, man, that, a, a passage like that sounds wonderful until you realize it was God that prepared the table. Why am I even in front of my enemies anyway? What is God trying to do by having me have people I have conflict with? What's God's agenda here? And it brings a completely different approach than just God is here to make me happy. So I didn't mean to mess with your spiritual life today. But I love you too much to not tell you what true discipleship really is. And that's God's agenda takes first place. And we daily come to him and say, God, you first, me second. No to me, yes to you. No to happiness, yes to joy. And in that, Jesus promises us significant, satisfying purpose, meaning a sense of destiny. And yeah, that's available to you. That's available to you. And that kind of life trumps anything else that the enemy of our soul would like to offer us instead. And that's why Jesus calls out Peter and he says, get behind me, Satan. I'm going somewhere. That kind of thing will keep us from getting there. Step back. Take second place. And so here's, as I wrestled with this for the last month, 
Here's what I have to ask myself. God, where is it I'm trying to step out in front? What am I trying? Where, where am I bringing my agenda? And I haven't even given voice to your, listen, followers of Jesus. When was the last time you said, God, what deep thing do you want to do in me? What deep purpose are you calling me to today? And I promise you, it's more than getting through your day. God, where would you like me to lay some stuff down and pick up your agenda instead? That's a dangerous prayer. But it will be the source of joy, happiness, peace, comfort, all the deep contentment. And it will last through every hardship. That's what we're called to, a life like that. Peter didn't like it. I don't like it. I bet you don't like it. But it's only because we're shallow in our understanding. So with that said, why don't we grab out our connect card and take a few steps together as a congregation. The hard sayings of Jesus, man, they're hard, aren't they? They're hard. I found not so hard to understand, but hard to live out. But one more time, that is your path to joy, contentment, purpose, meaning, and honor. It's not your story writ large, it's his story written large on our lives. And we get to be a part of that. So, if you're not yet in a relationship with Jesus, I'd, ask, I'd like to ask you to consider checking next step A right there on your connect card. And it says, today I'm making Jesus my Savior and Lord. If you're not yet in a relationship with a God who loves you enough to not let you be all about you, but instead calls you to something deeper and better than just you and what you feel in this moment, I want to ask you to consider giving your life over to Jesus. If you feel that tug on your heart right now, Here's the way we do it around here. You take your pen, you check next step A. In a moment we pray, you use your words, you borrow mine, and you say, God, I've been going my own way. I've been the Lord or the leader of my own life, but today I want you to be the leader. Today I ask you to take first seat in my life. And at the end of the service, I ask you to take that card, put it in the offering bucket. We'll communicate with you about that, about what it means for Jesus to be the Lord and Savior of your life. And if you feel like you can't do it, I get that. That's where I am. I can't do it. But he promises to come on board and to walk with you every step of the way. Or how about next step B? Today I'm choosing to be baptized. We have had over 40 adults in the last four weeks decide to make Jesus the leader of their lives. Now, friends, when I grew up, that was a spot for an amen. So here's what we're going to do. We're just going to give God some praise on that right now. So the next most obvious step should be that you follow him in his example of baptism and declare to this world you're not ashamed. Check that box. Let us be in communication with you. How about next step C? Here's a prayer I'm praying. I just tried to put some of what we're talking about in a sentence or two. Every day this, this week. If you, if you check it, I'll send this to you. You can join with me in prayer. God, when I'm tempted to act selfishly, isn't that what we're talking about here? Draw me once again to your cross where you gave freely and so fully. Help me to deny myself. As you take communion today, you can remember the sacrifice where he did not think himself so high and mighty that he refused to come down, take off his regal robes, put on robes of human flesh, and give himself for us. Our God isn't asking us to do anything he didn't already do for us. And I pray this prayer. God, you first, me second. You first, me second. Here's next step, D. I wonder if you would say, hey, I'm going to make a genuine effort to attend all five weeks of our Better Together message series. 
We're trying to raise the temperature on the right values around here so that as we move forward as one new unified church, we are open to all that God wants to do. And then finally, next step E. Some of you, as I was talking, here's what you were thinking. Yes, yes, this answers questions. Yes, we need this. Yes, there are people in my life. Perhaps God is tugging on you to be a, a leader around here. We need people who are more about God's agenda than their own. And so if you don't have it all figured out, but that's where your heart's leaning, perhaps, just maybe, you would check the box. I have interest in leading a 4C small group. You didn't commit by checking the box, but you committed to a conversation. And our team would love to talk with you about helping more of us understand what it means to deny ourselves, pick up our cross daily, and follow him. Let's pray about these things right now. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you that you love us enough to tell us the truth about us. That while, yes, you are into us, you love us deeply, really, you are into you. And because you're God, you get to do that. And I pray, God, that we would be more into you than we are into us. That we would hear your words to Peter to deny ourselves, pick up our crosses, and follow you. We would die to our own agendas. We would be raised to life in yours. And in that, that would bring us joy and purpose and meaning. Right now, Lord, I lift up every adult in this room who's saying, Jesus, forgive my sin. Become the Lord of my life. We give it all to you in the strong and holy name of Jesus. Amen and amen.